Today's episode of Track and Food on the Mid-Range Podcast Network is brought to you by Scout. If you're wanting to learn more about Vancouver's food and cultural sphere with regards to community news, new restaurant openings, essential guides to some of the city's best offerings, as well as who's hiring, Scout is where you should go. You can find them at scoutmagazine.ca. That's scoutmagazine.ca. And if you're on Vancouver Island, they also have a sister website called Islandist. Same type of content, only island-driven. That's islandist.ca. We're proud to have Scout as our presenting sponsor, as we believe what they scout out is an excellent complement to what we're offering here on Track and Food. Do check them out. Once again, that's scoutmagazine.ca. Welcome to the Track and Food Podcast. You're joining us on a really shitty, cloudy day today. My name is Jamie Wine, your host as always. I'm joined with my handsome, lovely co-host, Mickey McLeod. How are you today, Mickey? Thank you. I'm well. It's still warm, though. It is. But it's, a, it's, a, it's a fallacy. It's a, a thin layer of clouds, but the sun is it's still there, and it's freaking hot. Yeah, it's, it's muggy. It's gross. I'm kind of pissed off because today's my day off, and I was expecting it to be beautiful, nice June weather. It's the first day of, well, it's the second day of summer, and... Yeah. Yeah, it is what it is. But Yeah, you just can't trust your uh, iPhone anymore. No. Yeah. Not at all. But it's good to see you. It's nice to be here in person. We are yes. very very excited. We today is we've been talking about this for quite a while. Yes. We this is something we've been bringing up on the podcast for quite a while and I'd say this would be our we've talked about the idea of you brought this up about the idea of we've looking for a white whale. The white whale, yes. Would, would this be our white whale episode? I think this might be our white whale episode. Uh this and then I guess David Chang when we actually do get him. Yeah. If we do get him. No, but, we'll get him. Okay. Yeah. So we got this one. I'm, I'm very confident now. So, but uh, He is a white whale. Yeah. And I just learned how to pronounce his uh, name properly. Yes, it's very true, actually. <laughs> yeah, we're very excited to have on the Attorney General of uh, BC today, David Eby, uh, someone that I've been very eager to speak with. And uh, sadly, we must admit that this episode is actually just me. So this episode is mm-hmm. just me and David Eby together. Uh, Mickey was actually doing something very, very amazing this Friday. I was. He was uh, volunteering for the Juneteenth March uh, that happened here in Vancouver this past Friday on June 17th. Mm-hmm. Um, before we go any further, Mickey, why don't you tell us about that experience? Because I'm, I'm really proud that you, you and Tristan, our fellow co-host of uh, the Beats on Repeat podcast that we have here on Midrange, uh, was there with you as well, uh, that you guys participated in this great uh, movement. Um, and um, why don't you tell us about it? Because I was in there and, and it sounded like it was a really cool thing. Yeah, so Tristan is actually friends with one of the co-organizers. And we had, he had sent me the, the, the link to volunteer uh, early in the week. I think we got the email from David Eby's office the day before on Thursday. And unfortunately, I was already committed to volunteering at the um, the Unity March, uh, which happened on Juneteenth. It was actually about 75 volunteers came out, and we were split up into a few different groups. We were in crowd control, and then, and then that was basically blocking off the intersections on Hornby. Uh, people listening, the march went down Hornby, started at uh, down right close to you know where I used to work and where you currently work at the convention center and Vermont Pacific Rim shout outs, uh, and then all the way down to Sunset Beach. Half of the group was scouts as well, so basically making sure to report anything that was going on in the crowd. And then there was sanitation, people handing out masks and sanitizers, first aid. Really, really awesome, awesome event. I felt very privileged to be part of it. 
opened my eyes to a lot of different things. Uh, there was, I think, over 8,000 people there. Just a really, really great, fun experience to be involved in. And it was uh, mostly peaceful. Um, there was a couple incidences with some stupid people where I'm not even going to give them, um, any airtime talking about it, but generally speaking, it was, it was amazing, amazing turnout and, uh, just a great, great event to be part of, but I'm super, super pissed off that I didn't get a chance to talk to you, Mr. Eb. but maybe next, when he comes on the show next time, I'll be able to talk to him about some stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it was, uh, kind of ironic cause we've been talking about this for a long, long time. And unfortunately you weren't able to be there with me, but it was, yeah. David was fantastic. He was, this, this interview is, is wonderful. He's very candid. He's very honest about a lot of things. I kind of sourced out a lot of, uh, colleagues and my fr- and friends in the industry to kind of like make sure that I had, I was ready and prepared for questions to, you did a little them. mailbag section? And we did have a mailbag section. It was a lot nice. of cool. So we'll kind of throw shout outs to Bill Simmons and his podcast. Classic, yeah. But uh, it was really cool. And he, yeah, he he touches on everything. And what was I thought was really fun was when I, when I was doing the research uh, about him uh, personally was the fact that he's, I mean, obviously I knew that he was very prominent in the, you know, in social issues and stuff like this. And when he wanted to, he's always been an advocate for the downtown east side and a lot of, a lot of those things as a lawyer that he's been come up through. But he um he had written this handbook back in 2002 about how to handle and deal with police mm-hmm. which i thought was amazing i thought i was like i was like what are the odds kind of me- prevalent yeah i was like what are the odds <laughs> of me having a guest on to talk about this so at the beginning of the episode, beginning of the uh, interview we actually touched on this a little bit mm-hmm. and uh, yeah I was, he was really kind of honest about all this stuff and kind of really really in support of everything that's going on right now with the black lives movement and you know i brought him on to talk about the wholesale price, wholesale pricing which is you know the thing that's really really on the tip of the tip of the minds right now for a lot of restaurateurs and how much it's really going to give back to the to the industry here in the in the city and in the province and right. I think that's great from his office coming out and uh, addressing that and understanding how how much restaurants need that right now so that's why I was really excited to talk about that and he gives us a lot of great answers mm. but uh, the fact that he does have this background in a lot of stuff that's very prevalent right now in society was really cool and um, yeah I, we were just I'm very very happy that we were able to get him on very grateful to his office and to himself and uh, yeah we hope you guys enjoy this interview it's really really cool and uh, I think he'll come back on so because he did we'll he, see yeah we'll see hopefully it went well so I mean I don't see why he wouldn't you know he's six foot seven no, I didn't know that wow we we talked about it near the end there because in his profile no I didn't get a chance to talk basketball with on his him. profile I'm so it says he, he upset loves, he loves going to Thunberg games like I know and I was like what I was like do you play basketball and he's like he's like no he's like every every basketball coach or every in high school was like like I broke their hearts, not women's hearts, because they wanted me to be on the team, but I just didn't have the athletic ability. If you're six seven, then you're playing basketball. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah. But I was just like, but I was like, do you love it? And he's like, yeah. He's like, I'm not really a huge sports guy, but he's like, I've loved going to the games because it's just yeah. fun being a part of that kind of that whole scene. Well, my two years, so uh, I played two years at Langara College. My I was on a transfer program to UBC taking kinesiology, so I was like planning to go play for the Thunderbirds, but then I just dropped out of university because no one was making me go. But would have been so much to talk about next time why did you drop out oh you know no one was making me go i was like what no one's making me go to class this is weird no but i'm saying that you could have played on the thunderbirds i could have but I, my problem was i was i'm short right i'm six feet and in the basketball world that's very short but i was un- unfortunately in my high school i was tall for my my school so on my basketball team uh our center was six five like we didn't have a tall team i played for mcnair in richmond shout out to mcnair marlins so I played the swing. Like I played a three guard. So I never in high school developed those guard skills. So when I got to university, I was getting like torn up by guys like Randy Knorr. There's like guys who've been playing point guard and shooting guard their entire like uh, early um, high school careers, right? So I didn't have the dribbling skills. I didn't have the shooting skills. I have them now because I've worked on it over the years. <laughs> but at that time, I just, I, I, I wasn't, 
I was too undersized to be a swing because most of the swings were, you know, between six, four and six, six speaking university wise and college wise. And I was too not skilled enough to be a guard. So I didn't really fit in. So I, I didn't really see my career going far <laughs> in university, but anyways, that seems way too detailed for uh, our food and culture hospitality podcast. No, it's great. I mean, our you know our listeners they didn't get to listen to you in this episode. Yeah. So Hush, you know. uh, out Sam Payne if you're listening. You know, being weirdly sized. <laughs> well, Sam's well, Sam's taller than us. I think he's six two. He's a swing, yeah, I think. Mm. And also, if you are looking for some music and film content, you can check out uh, my other podcast that I do with Tristan Young who is part of the Midrange family, Beats on Repeat. We have an episode coming out this week uh, where we're very, very excited. We're featuring all black American content, film pick and the movie pick and all of the songs that you're going to hear are all from some of our favorite uh, black American artists. So that will be out this week as well. You know, it's well, by the way, just to, before we, because I know we'll get to we're the running interview. super long. <laughs> we're going to get to the interview, don't worry. But I was actually listening to Simmons and uh, Rosilla today on their podcast that they did yesterday. And for the first 20 minutes, all they talked about was how how awful they both were when they started doing podcasting and how uh-huh. difficult it was. And I was listening to this and it just t- brought me back so much to the fact that we've been doing this for two years now. Over two and a half now. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, I was listening. Simmons was saying, because Simmons started in 2007 and he was just like, he's like his first few guests, he had like David Stern and he had a couple other people and he was just like brutal. Uh-huh. He's, like, he's like, and someone, I guess someone put him up, put the, cause you can't find them on ESPN, but it's, I guess someone put them up on YouTube. Yeah. And he's talking about, he's like, he just went back and listened to me. He's like, I can't even believe I did this. He's like, it was so bad. Wow. And I was thinking about you and I when we started. And I was, I remember when we started, I was so nervous. Cause yeah. You're like, you put this microphone in front of yourself. I can confirm this. Yes. <laughs> what, you think you're a I pro? I was too. No, but I think the weirdest part about it is uh, getting, for, for me it was, um, getting used to the sound of your own voice. Because I was like, oh my God, I sound ridiculous. And then I kind of just like, there was a point in time where my voice stopped sounding weird to me and started sounding normal. The voice thing was never the thing that bothered me. Yeah. It's just, I feel like you, it's the things you, you always catch about yourself when you're doing this, you're always like, you're like, why am I saying um so many times? Why am I saying this? And you're like, Ugh. yeah. When you when don't I realize you're doing it. breathing so heavily. What? I'm, yeah, or anyone. <laughs> There's a lot of editing that go, that's involved, <laughs> uh, listener. So maybe we should do an episode. I know all of the, the intricate sounds that Jamie and Tristan's mouths make. Should we do an episode? <laughs> should we do an episode where you just don't, you leave all that in? So we have People yeah, totally. Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe at next year's Van Podfest, we'll, uh, we'll do like a live episode just like uh, Jeff Porter and Mo Amir did. Showed us to those guys for uh, Fear Science and uh, Van Color. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Can't edit it live. No, you cannot. I'd be down. Um, anyways, this is a fantastic episode. We are so grateful f- to the Attorney General for coming on. David Eby, uh, this is a fantastic one. If you want to learn a lot about the wholesale pricing that's coming up in Vancouver, it's going to be launching on July 31st here in, in BC. Mm-hmm. This is basically, this is profound for the industry, 20 to 25% uh, reduction in prices for restaurants. It's going to put a lot more money back into their pockets. Hopefully a lot of restaurants uh, will be able to save a lot of money and maybe eventually put, pass some of this money on to consumers. And it's just a great way to you know keep the restaurant thriving and alive and the less casualties we have, the better. And uh, I'm very excited for that. And in the words of Tristan Young, people in society, nobody gets any flying cars until you stop being fucking racist and fucking sexist. All right? Deal? <laughs> and there you go. Enjoy the episode. David Eby, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jamie. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you today? Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This is, uh, I will say that you are, uh, me and Mickey, my co-host, who unfortunately isn't here today, he's actually volunteering to be a part of the Juneteenth uh, March today, so he's here in Vancouver, so he's 
He uh, apologizes for not being here with you today. He was actually really sad because we've been talking about having you on our podcast for quite a while so now. I know that our listeners through Scout Magazine and through our podcasting channel will be very eager to hear some of your thoughts on uh, the topic that we want to talk about today with uh, wholesale pricing. Um, so I'm very, very grateful that you're joining us today. And I know you have a very busy schedule. So thank you. How are you overall? How are, how are things with you? throughout this whole COVID process. Um, thanks for asking. You know, our family is doing uh, relatively uh, uh, very well. You know, we've got nothing to complain about. We've got each other, all our relatives and friends are happy and healthy. And, you know, we're slowly turning back to life a little bit more normal. Uh, my uh, son is back at school. Uh, my daughter uh, is back in childcare. And so we're slowly uh, easing back into real life. And I'm going back to the legislature and three days uh, to Victoria, which feels a little surreal um, because we went down for the break, spring break, and uh, just never came back. So yeah, we're doing well and uh, and it feels like life is headed in the right direction, which is nice. That's very exciting. So today is actually a very poignant day, I think. Um, I know I'm meaning to talk to you about a lot of the measures that you released today throughout your office through the wholesale pricing, but um, today is Juneteenth. So a lot of people are going to be talking about uh, the Black Lives Matter stuff and you know the abolition of slavery in the United States. And there's going to be a big march here in Vancouver. And in doing research about you, I thought it was really interesting. I saw that you'd uh, written a handbook called The Arrest Pocketbook, uh, A Guide to Your Rights When Dealing with Police. And I'm just kind of curious about as a citizen, um, just briefly, just if you could touch on this, um, what are your thoughts on kind of like what's going on right now? And as someone who's obviously advocated for a lot of social justice, with especially here in Vancouver in the downtown east side, um, I know that you've been prominent in that in that movement and uh, obviously writing this pocketbook. I think I was reading it today and it's pointed out a lot of great things when it when people are dealing with uh, police officers and stuff like this. And obviously you have a lot of knowledge on this. I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, it's, a, it's obviously a profound moment for change and, and a super inspiring uh, moment for people who are passionate about uh, human rights and, and racial equality around the world. I think, I don't know, I, I mean, for myself... I felt so uh, disheartened uh, seeing the rise of racism in political discourse uh, starting in the United States and then spreading to Canada in really explicit ways, not the systemic racism that we are all rightly very concerned about that needs to be dealt with, but but really explicit out-and-out racism as part of political discussions in Canada. Uh, and then into COVID with the uh, attacks on uh, Iranian Canadians, uh, people of Iranian descent or uh, Persian Canadians, and and also uh, East Asian uh, Canadians because of people's association with outbreaks of COVID and these individuals, just deeply disturbing. So to see people speaking out against racism in such a forceful way is uh, is really inspiring. And and you know, I obviously in the public health crisis worried about people. Um, social distancing and uh, and keeping themselves safe and their relatives and friends and family safe when they attend these events. But at the same time, incredibly inspired uh, by uh, people speaking out on this and having worked on these issues for a long time, you know, I've never really seen a level of public interest in uh, policing related issues like this. And I can tell you that um, it has an effect on government. Uh, there's a review uh, that my colleague Mike Farnworth announced of the Police Act. Uh, he announced it uh, last week. We have been doing a lot of work in terms of police accountability at the provincial level around mandating cooperation of police officers with the oversight bodies we have in place in the province. There's been serious issues with that. 
And uh, we continue our engagement with the federal government about their inability to remove uh, problem uh, RCMP officers from that force, uh, an ongoing issue. So these all link to racism in Canada, uh, systemic racism, as well as, as overt racism. And, uh, and in many uh, situations, obviously, in our country related to Indigenous people and how uh, policing and the justice system uh, doesn't work for Indigenous Canadians. And you've been, you've, been, you've been kind of an advocate for this for a long, long time. Where did, where did, where did that come from? Was, that, was this something that was just always born out of you? It was, it was being a lawyer for a long, long time and kind of wanting to kind of right a lot of wrongs and stuff like this? Is that- so when I was in, uh, in undergrad, the, there was something called the anti-globalization movement, which was very front of mind for people about big international trade agreements not incorporating human rights and environmental standards. And there were some very large scale demonstrations uh, in Canada and in the United States around that. And the policing response to them were quite famous and resulted in public inquiries and uh, and scandal in both countries. And uh, it was about that time that I got interested in how do police interact with people, how do police relate to democracy. And uh, and it fed into work that I did around police accountability at Pivot Legal Society. I, I'll be honest, uh, Jamie, I never expected to be in this role as Attorney General uh, ever, and to find myself here at this moment with uh, authority and responsibility for the Independent Investigation Office, which uh, you know I worked with a lot of people in advocating for the establishment of uh, to to investigate cases of serious harm and death where police are involved independently of the police. It's a uh, incredibly uh, intimidating and uh, and also uh, a moment when I'm glad that I'm here and to be able to uh, to work on these issues and to have the level of public support that's clearly out there for increased accountability. Yeah, and I, 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 I commend you for all, all the efforts that you and your office are trying to, you know, and people in government are trying to work with all this. And I grew up with half my family's uh, Asian, you know, I'm a white male. And, um, you know, sometimes you, you don't understand things that other people have to go through. And uh, even though you may say you do, and, you know, it's, I'll never walk in those shoes that other people have to go through. And I've seen it with family members. I've seen, you know, racism, things like that. But sometimes you, it's hard for you to kind of recognize those things. And I think one of the great things that we're seeing now with a lot of this movement now is people are starting to, you're starting to get people who are not necessarily a minority, but, you know, white people like myself who are really starting to kind of understand and really care. And I think that's, I think that's a great, a great first step for hopefully equality for a lot of people. And, uh, that's a, that's pretty cool. I think it's really cool that you are really interested in that stuff. So um, I'm I'm a little bit nervous when it comes to stuff like that. When I see people going out and protesting, I get a little bit shy. <laughs> so yeah, it's not it's not everybody's way, and not everybody has the same uh, sort of opportunity or privilege to do that. And um, and so everybody just try to be a good ally in their own ways. And and I say that recognizing the important role that I'm in as uh, someone in government with that has been uh, given power and authority to make change and to take that really seriously. And and I have to say that the movement uh, that's happening internationally is a good reminder for me and for my colleagues about the importance of our role uh, mm-hmm. in government to make a difference for people and how we can do that through law and policy. I mean, the great news that came out this week, I want to commend your office for uh, getting this done. As someone who's worked in the restaurant community for over 20 years, steps taken this week. I know it's there's probably a lot of varying factors when it comes to how this works with overall governments and tax tax dollars brought in, and uh, but also you know, the thriving restaurant community that's really taken a big hit here. I know a lot of my colleagues who are restaurateurs and people in the industry were really, really excited about what was proposed in, uh, this week. So I thank you for, for getting that through and getting that, that much needed support that I think a lot of restaurateurs are really eager to access. And uh, so just to kind of touch on, so anybody out there who doesn't know anything, um, this past week, you guys announced that 
uh, wholesale pricing for uh, restaurants and bars will be effective July 31st to March 31st, 2021, um, where you upon you guys will be doing a review. Um, this is going to be anywhere from a 2020, 20 to 25% reduction. Am I correct? That's right. I'm just kind of curious for there's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of listeners out there who probably don't understand or probably don't know much about this whole process, or maybe just don't understand why it's, why it's important. If you can maybe kind of detail kind of how this kind of came about. Sure. So on being appointed minister for liquor, I thought I had a little bit of an understanding of the system. And, uh, from, uh, you know, in opposition, I was the critic, uh, for liquor policy and then coming into government, uh, when I was appointed minister, I was like, okay, so I have a bit of a handle on it. Uh, but to be honest, it is such a complicated and convoluted system of all three levels of government, provincial, municipal, federal, uh, everybody uh, highly involved in this very regulated sector. And obviously, a lot of tax money comes from the sector, not just in the sales tax at the restaurants on the on the alcohol, but uh, on various levels of markup all the way through, especially with, you know, public liquor stores and uh, distribution and everything. So it's a it's a wildly complicated system. You know, I think there have been efforts in the past, I'll be, you know, as generous as I can be, to to recognize that there is a need to modernize it and to fix it, uh, that we don't see alcohol as being uh, through the lens of prohibition uh, anymore. We see it through a public health lens, so we need to have sensible policies because addiction is a real thing and a lot of people's lives have been impacted by alcohol in a very negative way, and our public policies can help shape that. But that there are also sort of crazy things that happen in relation to alcohol policy that are not beneficial outcomes for anyone. They're just headaches or administrative costs or so on. So that that's the general frame that I came into the job in. And that, that's pre-COVID. So we put together a committee of uh, industry folks because, you know, as, as even as sophisticated as the understanding of the various public servants that I work with on this is, they don't work day to day in a restaurant or a bar uh, or a liquor store, um, and or a manufacturer, a distiller, a brewer. So they don't have to uh, engage with their own regulations and processes and see how they overlap and compound with the various levels of government every day. So the industry voice was missing, in my opinion. And so we put this group together. We called it, I gave it the most boring name I could, the Business Technical Advisory Panel, and we call it BTAP. <laughs> and the reason for that was really... I wanted the group to be able to come together and have the deliberations and discussions about policy priorities that they saw uh, without a huge amount of media or scrutiny. I mean, it wasn't secret, but at the same time, I didn't want to have, you know, their every word parsed for, is this the direction that government's going to go and not blah, blah, blah. It's a technical, and that's what it was. It was a technical advisory panel. We wanted them to advise us on the technical aspects of regulation, how we can fix it. And the group came together and just like an unbelievable level of cooperation and, and, and put together a list of priorities for government to work on in terms of policy reforms. And it was hugely helpful to me. It was able to, uh, you know, when you're in government, you can only do so many things. What are your priorities going to be? How do you choose them? Is it just the minister likes to drink cider and so we'll do a bunch of cider policy or, you know, are we, you know, we know someone who's a distiller and so we want to do something related to distilling like it. This uh, really helped me to set out a, a work plan. And then COVID hit. And uh, the group pivoted very quickly from being this technical advisory panel to, to being like emergency room physicians, you know, rolling in this, uh, this uh, injured party, which is the hospitality and tourism industries. Uh, a lot of uh, businesses just clinging to life. 
and uh, being essentially the experts to advise government on how to minimize harm and how to keep the patient alive for as long as possible. And so uh, one of their key recommendations was they, they've had a number, and I, I hope we get a chance to talk about them, but the one that we announced um, uh, this week was, it's called hospitality pricing, but you know, for those people who don't work in a bar or restaurant may not know, bars and restaurants are only allowed to buy from government liquor stores, and they buy at full retail price. And hospitality pricing is just the very common sense idea that there should be some sort of wholesale discount for bars and restaurants when they're purchasing, that purchasing at full retail obviously means that the drinks will be significantly more expensive at the bar or restaurant, but also the uh, opportunity to cover costs that much reduced. And, uh, and so it made a lot of sense to me that this was a way to provide money directly to those people operating businesses who needed to make payroll, who needed to pay rent, who were telling them they're only allowed to have 50% of their usual customers even after reopening. They've been closed for months. Uh, they need financial support immediately or their business is going to close forever. And this didn't rely on giving money to a landlord and hoping that the landlord would pass that on to the tenant. It didn't rely on on giving money to anyone other than uh, the business that needed it to stay alive. And so that's why I thought the idea was very appealing. I brought it forward to my colleagues in government. They were very enthusiastic about it. I think everybody, you know, as our family are big Scout fans. And so, you know, before we had kids, we relied on Scout for restaurant recommendations. And afterwards, we sort of vicariously lived through, uh, so, uh, through Scout's uh, restaurant uh, profiles. And so, you know, we, we get it. We, we love restaurants and so do my colleagues. And, and we love our local restaurants and we love those local businesses and we want to support them. And so it was a very easy sell. And, uh, and it also bumps up against uh, some of the administrative problems of the current system, which we can go into. But, uh, but this reform is big, and it's something the industry has been asking for for a long time. And it will be a 20 to 25% discount on their purchases of alcohol, which will be hopefully used by them to give them the margin they need to operate and at least break even and survive uh, with 50% of their usual clientele. Amazing. So when you talk about this panel, is that panel comprised of people that work in government or did you source out people within the industry to put on that panel or is that? No, not at all. This is the, this panel is entirely um, coming from the private uh, sector. So there are, uh, there's a, uh, a representative of the distillers, craft distillers in the province, craft brewers, uh, the big brewers have a representative, uh, the BC Wine Institute, uh, the Restaurant Association. Uh, the, it's chaired by a lawyer, Mark Hicken, who is uh, very well known in the industry as a, as an industry lawyer. I've done a lot of research on him. He's, he's done a lot of cool stuff, Mark Hicken. Yeah. yeah, he's a really neat guy. He has a blog. People check it out. Uh, but so it's it, it was all people from the private sector to bring that point of view that I didn't have. I, I have amazing uh, staff in the ministry. They're incredibly thoughtful and uh, helpful on policy reform. But the voice that was missing was that private voice. And that's who these folks are. Amazing. That's, that's, that's awesome. And it's, it's really cool that you were able to kind of, I think that's a great way to approach it, right? I mean, it's understanding, like, I probably don't have all the answers. Um, I definitely, there's going to be people in this industry who definitely do and just trying to gather as much information as you can from all this stuff. Was this something that's been on the, on, on the pipeline for a long, long time before even you became into, into, came into office? Or is this something that's, because I know a lot of people have been clamoring yeah. for this for a long, long time. Yeah. So the, this is something that has been on industry's wish list for a long time. Uh, you know, it, I, it must be, um, you know, you open a restaurant and you get your liquor license and you jump through all the hurdles and then you're like, oh, finally. And then you, you're like, okay, so now it's time to, to buy the 
alcohol to sell to people and you're paying full retail price and then some somehow between full retail price uh, selling an, an actual drink to a customer, you've got to make enough money to cover your staff and rent and and so on. And so that's hard to do. And it's one of the reasons why margins are quite thin in the restaurant and famously thin in the restaurant and bar industry uh, and why there's a lot of turnover and uh, and on and on. So it has been a perennial issue that is raised by industry representatives. Can we get hospitality pricing? And that that's why it featured prominently on that first list of priorities. And that's why it was one of the areas that we were involved in active discussions about even before COVID, about how to uh, deliver this. And people say, well, why wouldn't, I mean, where, why was this even controversial? Why wouldn't you do this? Uh, and there are 50 million reasons um, why no government has done this. That's the annualized retail markup paid by bars and restaurants when they buy their alcohol at government liquor stores that, you know, in, in 50 million, depending on your perspective, either sounds like a lot or like nothing at all. But in terms of government priorities, if you've got $50 million and you can provide a discount for uh, bars and restaurants buying alcohol, or you can, you know, you can open 10 schools, uh, 10 new schools across the province, it's kind of a no brainer in terms of what the community's priorities are. And that's why this has never gotten done. In my opinion, it's just not been um, a priority in terms of government spending. Yeah, and I guess that makes sense. I mean, that, I mean, that's definitely when I was talking to a lot of people about this. I mean, that's definitely one thing. A lot of people are probably thinking like, why, why is this taking so long? What's been the red tape? Like, what's been all the process? And I understand. It. I mean, I understand that you know, there's there's so many ways with when you work in government that you're going to be pulled in so many different directions and competing agendas, and people have different uh, viewpoints on what's important. And you know, I think at the end of the day, there's probably a lot of people who also think that you know. If people are drinking more, maybe that's a bad thing too, right? So, but and then you have restaurant owners and bar owners who are probably thinking, you know, giving us a break will help help give the business more access and more viability. So, I can I can see the competing competing arguments on both sides. So, did you get any pushback in doing this? You know, from my colleagues, no. You know, I mean, and and a lot of it has to do with COVID. Um, you know, everybody just understanding the emergency facing. Um, hospitality and tourism because of the public health orders and uh, everybody understanding and having a personal touch and a knowledge of a restaurant that they love and knowing the people there and knowing the distress that they're under. Everyone was very much on side. And I have to say it was uh, absolutely a nonpartisan issue that, uh, that all of the political parties um, supported the idea as well. And so it's, it's one of these things in a time of crisis that, uh, that was just not, uh, not controversial. And, and even groups that, so there, there are a couple of groups that, you know, in, in, in supporting this at the BTAP table, uh, put their own interests aside. And one group is the BC Wine Institute, wineries in BC, direct deliver uh, wine to uh, restaurants in the province at a reduced rate. Uh, and so, you know, in, in having that wine now go at wholesale, they, they lose that uh, advantage that they had previously. But they said, you know, to their credit, uh, you know, what good is that competitive advantage if there's no restaurants to sell to because they're all broke? Uh, and so that kind of altruistic approach, I think, shows up most prominently during a crisis. And uh, and I really uh, want to credit uh, the craft brewers, the distillers, the wineries for recognizing that uh, without restaurants, you know, that this is existential for restaurants. And so without restaurants, then uh, they're all going to suffer more. So they put their own interests aside and endorsed this plan and, and championed it, which was amazing to see. When you talked about this earlier, you brought this up, you said that there was a, a number of recommendations that were bought by this panel. Did you want to elaborate on any further 
Yeah, sure. Yeah. There, so in the very early days of the pandemic, when we started to see uh, the impact of public health orders we're going to have on restaurants uh, in particular, um, this was the group that came up with the idea of uh, permitting uh, restaurants to direct deliver packaged alcohol with, uh, with meals. Um, you know, the restaurants all have this stock of beer and wine and that was just sitting there uh, in money tied up in that inventory. Uh, and profit margin lost because they're not selling it at all. And if they could deliver it with a meal, uh, it seemed to make a lot of sense. And so that's where that policy came from. And it was adopted by uh, Ontario uh, shortly after. In addition, the uh, patio expansion policy where um, the province, uh, we set up an expedited web approval process for expanded patios, recognizing that the public health order said, you know, you're, you're, uh, required to main, maintain social distancing within the restaurant. And uh, so with capacity being the same level, but spreading that service area over a larger area, you could potentially get closer to your usual restaurant capacity. And patio is one way to do that. And we also know in terms of this virus, it's uh, more difficult to spread outside compared to inside environments. So a lot of people feel more comfortable eating and drinking outside as opposed to being inside a restaurant. So uh, working with municipalities to get that expedited process in place so that restaurants could have more space to serve people and to make enough money to cover their rent and their their salary costs was another uh, initiative that was also uh, uh, championed and supported by the the business technical uh, group. For others, you know, there are bars that uh, simply uh, have not been able to open because of the nature of their business. And, uh, you know, we think about like nightclubs and, uh, and bars with concert that hold concerts and those kinds of things, just uh, putting a hold on their license fees, which are expensive. And uh, so that they didn't have to pay them and cover them in the period when they're shut down to pay for a license. And so that they didn't have to worry if they canceled the license because they couldn't afford it, that it wouldn't be there for them, or they'd have to go through another process to get it started after the pandemic. And then more technical things like allowing if you if you have two locations and one is closed, allowing you to move alcohol from one location to another. It sounds like really what could the issue possibly be? Uh, but these are the things that came up uh, that uh, have been able to be addressed in the context of the pandemic. And uh, and we'll see about how that works going forward. Uh, when you talk about the patio patio extensions and then also the liquor deliver the liquor delivery when people want to do like are those things that you think because uh, I, I know the the delivery one i think is until july 15th is it, are those things that you think will be extended permanently that's something that you guys are considering or yeah i really hope so i um so the in terms of the patio uh piece just seeing how it's uh going to play out and how it's starting to play out it's kind of really uh exciting you know to see restaurants animating these parking lots and uh, parking spots and dead zones into lively outside spaces that feel very like European in many ways. And in terms of those sort of public square kind of atmospheres, it's very cool to see. And and I, so I really hope that one sticks around. In terms of the delivery of packaged alcohol, um, it's a more nuanced uh, discussion because with wholesale pricing now, We'll have to have an engagement with the BTAP panel and with uh, the industries affected. I, I don't want to prejudge what that conversation will be like. I think it's working pretty well. Um, we've had a suggestion that is not currently being pursued, but it is available in other jurisdictions of premixed drinks being delivered. You know, so there's a lot of opportunity and discussion that uh, has been created by these changes. One of the biggest things is that the outcomes are pretty unpredictable. Um, you know, for 
people uh, who haven't had the opportunity to be in government or to see how government works as, through the public service. Anytime there's a big policy change like this, staff will create a briefing note and the briefing note will say, you know, option one, this, option two, that, option three, this. And for each option, they'll kind of go through the pros and the cons. The pro is that you're, you know, providing financial support to the restaurant industry. The con is you're making alcohol more widely available and there are public health consequences. The con is that there's a reduced uh, level of government income. You know, often those are accurate, but sometimes there are totally unanticipated consequences that come from these policy changes. And we have changed so many policies in such a short period of time that the reviews that are going to take place post-COVID about how did it work, what were the outcomes, what did people see, what did they like, what did they not like, are going to be very interesting. And one of them is hospitality pricing. I am really curious to see what impact uh, it actually has on government revenues and what impact it has on tourism and uh, restaurants uh, in the province, uh, because it is a huge experiment uh, that uh, or ordinarily would never have happened. And for the patios as well, to see how that rolls out, I, I, I think it'll be a hugely popular project, but it might not be. I mean, people might be like, I can't believe that you let this restaurant open this massive patio underneath my condo like it, or near my retirement home or whatever it is. And so we'll have to see what happens. Um, but I'm, I'm much like the courts, much like um, some of the reforms we're doing around uh, ICBC, uh, related to phone and uh, and email renewals, like I feel like some of these things are going to stick around long term. Amazing, yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. And when you're talking about the patio stuff, I mean, I have good friends who own this great restaurant here in Vancouver, uh, Say Mercy, and I think today, I think today or tomorrow, I think they're launching like a, this beautiful side patio where they're doing like nice sandwiches, and then at nighttime they're doing like a, like a little cute little wine bar, and, I'm, and it just looks fantastic. And I'm just like, okay, this is so cool. I'm like, I love this. So for that, I, I'm 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 all all in on, on the extra patios, especially when in fact the summer's on its way. So I'm, I thought that was pretty cool. I definitely understand. I understand that uh, when it comes to you know making these decisions, I've, there's definitely a lot of uh, you have to weigh the pros and cons, and can't always think about one side so much. So you definitely have to understand that. So I, I understand the, the the reasoning why you you probably will implement a policy and then come back to it and be like, okay, did the, are we are we still in favor of doing this, maintaining this, doing it long term? So um, thank you for clarifying that. By the way. I can't imagine sometimes doing your job. <laughs> I can't imagine sometimes, uh, you know, sitting on all these panels and doing all these things and definitely probably having all these thoughts where you want to get all these things through, but also understanding there's a lot of other logistics that come into it. So for a lot of the stuff that's going on with the restaurant industry now, and you're talking about the wholesale pricing and the patios and the delivery and all these things, these are all great measures that I think are hopefully going to stymie the, the tide here for a lot of the restaurants as we try to get through the rest of this pandemic and uh, hopefully minimize any casualties when it comes to any restaurants, you know, not being able to reopen at all or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I think that's a lot of these things you're, you're saying here are really cool. So just to touch on here, I did touch, I did talk to a couple of friends and they, they, uh, they wanted me to ask you a few questions here. So if you don't mind me, I'm going to no, let's go to the mailbag. Yeah. The first one's really simple, I guess. And this one came up a few times, actually, is the restaurant wholesale going to be the same as the current LRS wholesale? So I guess that was the first one I was asked. I was asked several times, actually. So at first it took me a while to understand it, but then yeah. Yes. So the, the question's asking, you know, uh, in terms of what private liquor stores pay to buy their product, is the the cost for restaurants uh, and uh, and bars going to be the same? And the answer is yes. It's a full uh, discount all the way to the wholesale price that that the liquor distribution branch sells to private liquor stores at. So it's, it will be the same price. 
the reason behind the question is there are a number of different models that have been proposed, uh, you know, a 5% discount, a 10% discount, a 15% discount, but not all the way to wholesale price, but this is the full wholesale price. Well, there we go. Question two, is this a long-term commitment to overhauling and updating BC's liquor policies? Is there anything else that you're looking to update uh, that you've kind of looked through the, because you were saying earlier that we sometimes have a little bit of antiquated policies here. <laughs> so Yeah. Yeah. If people are curious about what we're working on, um, the business technical advisory panel report is online and that is our work plan. Uh, so there are, it was interrupted and accelerated in some ways and, and maybe priorities were shifted a bit. I mean, no one said anything about patios in the BTAP plan, but, um, but generally speaking, that is our direction on policy reform. And, uh, and so there are some pieces on there, like how distribution, uh, of alcohol works in the province. Uh, there's products called, so, so many of these things sound so technical, but they really manifest in ways that are really practical for people. So, non-stock wholesale products. <laughs> These are products where uh, there's not a huge amount of demand for them. They're specialty products, wines, liqueurs, and so on that are not ordinarily stocked in the warehouse uh, of the liquor distribution branch. Uh, and if you want to get them and you run a restaurant or a bar, you have to order a case of it, uh, which you know maybe that makes sense for some products, but for others... Uh, you know, you just need to use an eighth of an ounce of something in a martini, a special martini that you make at your bar and you sell, you know, 20 of them a month. It, it just doesn't make sense to order a case of it. Uh, and so um, for those products, the proposal is that um, that licensees be able to purchase from private stores. So the private store would order a case of it and then sell one bottle at a time. And so those are the kinds of things that are currently uh, under discussion. And uh, that we're working on uh, a lot of uh, the work has been interrupted by our COVID response and the need to get a, a bunch of policy changes out in a very short period of time. But um, but that is the direction. And, and I've been um, really clear with everybody that that's the stuff that we're working on. Uh, that list that was set out by the BTAP group. So if you're curious, it's right there on the website. <laughs> I, I, that was like my next question. I had, the, I had that question thrown at me like five times. <laughs> so Yeah, I'm right sure. on. Yeah. Everyone wants to know what's next, you know, and it, and the good news is uh, the list of priorities is right there. The other one here, I have another question is um, the LDB has never been transparent about their markups. Will that be, will that change now? And if not, will that change on April 21st? So yes and no. Uh, so the LDB will not be publicly releasing the wholesale price of the products. However, the for licensees that are eligible to buy at wholesale, um, they will have access to a web portal with the wholesale prices so they can do their business planning. Um, okay. So they know the cost of the products that they're ordering, which makes sense, right? So it won't be a public release, but uh, bars and restaurants, when they're ordering their products, can go to the portal and look at the cost of various products and, and order accordingly. And then when they go to the liquor store to purchase them, uh, the, as usual, the uh, person at the till will enter their license number and that will pull those same wholesale price wholesale prices in and that'll be what they're paying at the till. Is that the portal that's being developed right now by Deloitte? Am I correct? Close. Um, so Deloitte is doing some work for us, but it, uh, it was on the distribution side. Okay. Um, the work is happening uh, internally to the liquor distribution branch, but it, there are some very big wholesale customers that already have access to a website for uh, their orders. They pick them up through the distribution center. So that'll be expanded to all 8,600, I think, licensees across the province. Uh, we'll have access to a website listing of products with the wholesale price so that they can know before they go to the liquor store, 
they can know what the prices they're going to be seeing at the till when they enter their license number there. When you're factoring in all these decisions and looking at these things, do you guys ever look at other provinces or other jurisdictions and kind of like try to emulate their models or kind of like see the successes that they've had? And so is that something that's something that you guys kind of look into as well? Um, yeah, we do. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the best pre-COVID when, you know, when we were spending a bunch of time trying to figure out what is the impact of this policy going to be. One of the best uh, laboratories is other provinces that have already made the change. And, uh, and usually provinces are quite forthcoming in terms of sharing information about uh, impacts of change in policy. Uh, right next door to us, Alberta has a very different approach to uh, liquor than we do. They have uh, an entirely private uh, retail uh, side. Uh, they have uh, privatized uh, distribution uh, as well. And they have public uh, aspects of uh, regulation and distribution too. So it's it's a totally different kind of model. And so Alberta, there's a number of examples that we can look at in terms of what they've done. But for hospitality price, to my knowledge, um, uh, we are the only province in Canada with a full wholesale dis- discount for hospitality. And I expect that other provinces will be adopting that. Uh, and in terms of our COVID response, uh, we've been watching carefully what other provinces have been doing generally. Uh, and on the liquor side, I'm very proud uh, that British Columbia has been leading with a lot of these responses that have been adopted by other provinces. Also, uh, I think in this time of all of us trying to wrap our heads around how to respond to this pandemic and, and the public health orders that come with it, uh, there's been a really remarkable level of cooperation between the provinces when it was just, you know, uh, maybe a year ago, uh, we were having uh, some pretty high profile uh, disputes with Alberta over a pipeline. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and now, you know, there's a, and regardless of political party, uh, the, the sort of sense of unity and cooperation to respond is, is quite remarkable. So it's been helpful in designing these measures to be able to talk with other provinces. Next question here I got, have you looked at other models, including the success of Saskatchewan's, um, new auctioning off of government retail stores? Is that something that, that, because running the stores, is that really expensive for you guys? All of the, uh, all of the government stores are profitable. Uh, for government. And uh, there are obviously costs associated with running a store versus a private operator of a store. So, you know, when there are things like uh, theft or, uh, you know, employee related losses and costs like that, those are things that if you have an entirely privately operated retail chain, you don't bear those costs. Uh, One of the things I'm very cognizant of is that, um, there's a huge amount of public support for government liquor stores. Uh, the public likes them, uh, and uh, they are also uh, they also underwrite a huge amount of government programming through the profits that they generate. And so, those two factors alone do uh, highly recommend their continued operation. And you'll note that they continued to operate all the way through the reign of, uh, of Gordon Campbell, who was a premier who was quite committed to privatization. Uh, and, uh, and that is probably, uh, as good an endorsement of any as to why it's, it's not on our list, uh, of things to look at in terms of selling off the government, uh, liquor stores. One of the things to note is on the cannabis side, you know, we had the opportunity to, to consider, you know, how are we going to run retail stores? What is it going to look like? We have 240 private licensed stores across the province and there's, Somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, of about twenty uh, government stores, either planned or currently in operation. The reason why we decided to do public stores on the cannabis side, as well, uh, despite the fact that we reasonably anticipated there would be a decent pickup of uh, private stores, is there were some communities that told us that they would only 
uh, welcome at the time, uh, that they would only welcome a public store. And our goal around that was, uh, and maybe uh, this was part of the reasoning around public uh, retail stores as well, around alcohol, uh, part of our goal was to uh, uh, help chase the black market out and uh, to provide uh, access to retail cannabis across the province. And so for those communities that only wanted public stores, we, um, we went with that dual model again. Yeah, I, I, guess, I guess that's under your purview as well. Mike. Yeah, I share it with the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth. Yeah, two more questions here. Uh, what happens if restaurants and bars are flourishing in March when you guys come up with the review panel? And what would be the exit strategy if you guys decide to change or not adopt this permanently? Is that yeah. Oh, God, I hope so. You know, I really do hope so. I, um, you know, I listened to Bonnie Henry, the chief public health officer, talk about the certainty of a second wave of the pandemic uh, and the overlap of it with flu season in the fall and, uh, and all the um, reasonable anxiety that a concern around that brings and so I hope uh, in March that we're, you know, that restaurants are just killing it. And everybody's great. And, and, you know, we got a vaccine or we got a treatment, whatever it is. I think that restaurants and bars are probably going to be struggling for a while, uh, even if things uh, go back to normal, uh, quote unquote, uh, sooner rather than later. And the reason for that is twofold. One is um, just the devastating financial impact of the period of the closure to date. And the second is, are people going to go to restaurants or bars in the same way that they did before? And so uh, let's, let's assume best case scenario, everybody's just doing great and they're all back on track. The review will certainly look at that, but that is not the only uh, value that will be evaluated. And, you know, the questions will be asked, what was the impact on government revenue of uh, moving to wholesale? How much did it actually cost? Were there positive outcomes that weren't expected? Were there negative outcomes? Did we have uh, more reports of uh, problem drinking or excessive drinking, uh, you know, uh, super discount uh, drinks uh, provided uh, that caused people to overconsume and uh, an increased number of penalties? Or did we see, you know, an increasing uh, number of new licensees uh, and new restaurants that were opening because the margins are slightly better uh, than they used to be? And so there's more diversity of restaurants and, and communities are better served across the province. So it's really hard to know uh, what the outcomes are going to look like. I don't want to prejudge it. And, uh, and simply because restaurants were, would be doing better financially, that's not the only criteria that would be looked at by my colleagues in Treasury Board or in government in terms of what to do about that. In terms of the discussion we were having about wholesale pricing before uh, COVID, we were trying to find ways to make it revenue neutral for uh, government that we could provide a discount uh, and still... Uh, have government recover the same level of tax revenue. So shifting that cost to other areas uh, and taking some of the burden off of, uh, of restaurants directly. So that's certainly potentially on the table as well. It, it's, it's so hard to know at this stage until we get to March. I mean, that feels like a million years away in terms of how this thing moves and what happens. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I was uh, furloughed at my job at the, at the Fairmont in mid-March and I went back to work this past week, actually. So I'm very. Oh, happy. great news! Yeah, it, it feels great. We, I was working, and it feels great to be back at the hotel. And it's a little weird. I mean, but uh, we, you know, we're starting to come back to life, and it feels good to be back and uh, back in there. And I'm very grateful for that. And uh, but it would, I, I will agree with you that that time off felt like it felt like ten years ago. It's uh, so I, I think you know next March it's probably it feels like you know decades from now. So I understand that uh, making those decisions now and having answers is probably a little bit uh, 
uh, presumptive. Yeah, it's soon. I mean, the policy is not even in place yet. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so there's part of that too. Uh, and then the last question, this comes from my friend, Tracy. She I wonders, uh, when will you run for prime minister? So <laughs> Thank you, Tracy. Uh, I'll take that as a compliment that you don't want to get rid of me as li- minister for liquor. <laughs> I, no. um, I uh, will have to work on my French, I guess, if that's the plan. I, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I, you know, Ottawa is a nice place to visit, but I'm not sure I could live there. <laughs> can you speak French at all? Uh, you know what? I've got my grade 11 French uh, under my belt. I, I can uh, I can destroy that language very quickly in just a few minutes. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, no, she's she. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan, and she was she, we were talking about this yesterday, and she's like she's uh, she as we were talking earlier, she's a big fan of a lot of the stuff that you've been trying to do with. Uh, oh, right on. Well, thank you, Tracy. I mean, thanks for the compliment. I appreciate that pat on the back. And uh, you've got a lot of fans this week. We're very 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 thankful for all the things you guys have your office has been able to uh, bring out with this this. This, this discount and this wholesale stuff pricing, uh, I don't think a lot of the general public understands what it is, but it's, it's definitely going to help the restaurant community overall. And I think I, I know, and you've obviously outlined that today, that that's, that was a number one priority. And um, it's, uh, it's fantastic. And I, I hope all my restaurant friends out there can survive and, you know, we can, they can employ people, they can bring people back to work. And I think at the end of the day, that's the ultimate goal here. I did also realize and read on your byline that you, you like to go to Thunderbird basketball games. Are you a basketball fan? <laughs> I love going to Thunderbird basketball games because I can sit like right on the floor and uh, it's great basketball and uh, the drinks are reasonably priced and it's a lot of fun. You know, I, uh, I did catch a little bit of, of uh, Michael Jordan and company on Netflix over the, over the break here, but I, I, I won't claim to be a big uh, NBA fan. I like, I like going to games. I like physically being there and I like supporting our UBC team. Yeah. That's awesome. No, when I read that, I was just like, hmm. cause uh, Mickey, my co-host, we were like, Huge NBA nuts. So you guys are crazy, eh? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was kind of curious if you like played basketball. If you, I did. Yeah. And and uh, interesting that you would ask that over <laughs> for, for the, your listeners. I mean, obviously we're not in the same room. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm six seven, uh, and get that question a lot. And uh, it unfortunately for so many, I my my running line is that I broke a lot of hearts in high school, but uh, they were all high school basketball coaches. I just like I'd walk out and they'd be like in love. They'd be like, oh my god, this guy. Uh, we can train them, and I just proved to be completely untrainable. I love the sport. I love watching it being played well. Uh, I do not play it well. Are you saying that you lack a little bit of that uh, athletic gusto that LeBron James has? Is, is that what you're I saying? have. I have other talents, Jamie. <laughs> they uh, running and uh, and uh, jumping just have proven not to be among them. Is the height from uh, dad's side or mom's side? Uh, you know, it's uh, I've got a tiny mom, but her cousins were huge, and, uh, and so I had an uncle who was. Uh, who is six six and uh, and all the EB kids when we get together? I've got three siblings. We're all over six feet, including my sister. So um, mm-hmm. there's uh, we range from about six one to six seven. So it's uh, it's quite a scene. Awesome. I want to say thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, I know a lot of our listeners uh, on Scouts and everything are going to be very appreciative of all these of all the stuff that you've discussed today. Keep up the great work. I know this has been definitely tough, and it sounds like you're very excited to go back to work in the legislature. You're saying next week? Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yeah, so that's that's exciting. I'm sure that's going to be nice to actually see some faces again. Uh, do you got any big plans for yourself this summer? Are you going to? Work yeah, well, was just uh, just watching Bonnie Henry's advice closely. We'd love to get away this summer, but we'll probably be staying uh, certainly within the province and pretty close to home. Listen, uh, Jamie, if you don't mind, just in wrap up, I um, would just like to let your listeners know. I mean, this these policy changes are a really good example of why politics matters and. And beyond that, uh, the marches that uh, that uh, Mickey is part of today. Uh, it's just so important for people to express themselves to government and uh, and to understand that 
it, you know, that you can be heard and you can have an impact. And, and I just really encourage people to participate in some way around the big movements that are happening now. And also about, you know, in a socially distanced way, uh, but also, uh, you know, to reach out to politicians. It's not something that occurs to people front of mind. And, and uh, I do encourage people to do that. So if they think of it, uh, and if they have time and capacity, I really encourage them to, to tell their politicians uh, what's going on. Uh, from your perspective, and and they might be surprised at what happens. You get a lot of letters. I do, and yeah. uh, and I read them all. You know, I, I don't read every form letter. I read one of them, uh, and uh, and people do uh, write replies for me. I edit my replies uh, regularly, and sometimes I write my own replies. But it does make a difference for me, and I know it does for my colleagues as well. And you know, my sister's in hospitality in Ontario, and she wrote to the mayor of the community where her restaurant that she manages is and she was blown away when he wrote back and was super supportive around uh patio issue she was facing and with her restaurant and and i think that uh hospitality for whatever reason is not a voice we hear often enough uh in government and and there's a great opportunity for people involved in the industry to share that information but more than that in these times of uh, demands for racial justice and equality i think it's it's helpful for for us to hear uh directly from people as well i i i couldn't agree with you more i think that's you know, I think sometimes people, they get a little bit uh, deflated sometimes when they think about governments and they think about people in politics and stuff like this and people that have uh, opportunity to make change. Um, but I, you know, I think the more that people feel like they're, they're, their voices can be heard, I think it's great for the society overall. And I think, you know, today's March is a great uh, example of that. And uh, yeah, I thank you for uh, taking the time for myself today and for our listeners. I guess as David's saying here, uh, anybody out there who's interested in the uh, Reaching out, send them, a, send them a nice email. So sure. ag.minister ag. at gov.bc.ca. There you go. And uh, tell him that maybe he should get back on the basketball court. So, and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Tell me to get, yeah, like every basketball coach ever, tell me to practice more and maybe lift some weights. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay, um, thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me on. Uh,